All right, uh, open your Bibles with me, if you would like, to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, which is our Pew Bible, uh, verses 1 through 13. Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi, a colony. Uh, it's a church that is Roman citizens gathered as a colony uh, in a foreign land in a foreign culture. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ the Messiah Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. All right, so this summer, what I would like to do is start a series here. We're not going back to Acts, not anytime soon. We had a nice break, breaking point at Paul's conversion. We jumped into James, and now we're going to just go back into more of Paul's letters, probably, in the New Testament. But the series that we're going to be looking at, I'm calling, I'm calling Embodied Christianity. Embodied Christianity. What does that mean? What does it mean to embody Christ? What does it mean to be Christians who are in a body? In a world that is increasingly disincarnated, our model is not to become God-like in the way we see it, but to become Jesus-like. That is what Christians do. Jesus became king by first becoming human. And so it is not our desire to leave our human nature, but to fully embrace our human nature in the name of of Jesus. That's what it means to live as a Christian in our human body. 
In a world that is increasingly body modifying, Jesus came in a single male body to a Jewish family and lived out of a cultural identity with local customs, with neighbors, with friends, with people he could look in the eyes with, all for the glory of God. Jesus ate at feasts, drank alcohol at parties, slept, cried, got upset, endured fasting, walked great distances, was born, and went through the pain of death. And he did this all by choice. And by giving himself in true obedience to God as a human through death, he lived out his identity as a beloved son of God. And he redeemed humanity from their sinful nature, adopting us as family, saving us, and modeling true humanity for us. So to be Christian is to be like Jesus, to be fully and deeply human. More fully than anyone but Christ has been. This is to embody Christianity. So that's what we're going to look at this summer. And summer is a time where we're very embodied, right? We are in 4th of July weekend. We have been, in the past few weeks, out to boat races in our bodies. We've been to swimming pools. We've broken sweats. We have done lip sync battles. Our kids did a lip sync battle here the other day. We've done water balloon fights. We're eating outside. We're doing cookouts. These are all ways that in the summer we just embrace being in a body together with each other. This is how we experience the joy of living. We, we see each other in the flesh. We celebrate. We eat. We drink. We play. We're creative. We watch wonder and beauty like some of us will have a chance to do tomorrow night with fireworks. And all of these things are practicing ways in which we meet God. We get to practice meeting God in this life so that when we come to meet him after our death or at his second coming, it won't be a sticker shock. It won't be suddenly we're totally unlike ourselves. We will have become like Christ in union with God in this life. That's, that's the plan. That's the point. That's why we're here. So we meet God here. A good example of how we meet God. Okay. Where my hand, where my fingerprints meet this Bible. That's the meeting place. That intersection is where everything happens. The Bible, God's word, without me is God. It's not, if nothing's happening. If I'm just around here, no God. It is the meeting place, the periphery, the borderlands. That is the place in which all of the magic happens. The contact point, the friction, the tension, the joy, all happens when we connect God to our reality. Not as separate, not as something we need to escape from this reality to get to, and not as separate something that doesn't exist in this reality because we can't see it. So to embody Christianity is to live with the sense that we are in contact with God or at all of the edges of our body, everywhere to the extent that our body is, that we reach out and touch, there God is, interacting 
with us. It's in that intersection point that all of the comfort happens too. It's in that intersection point that all the true lament can happen because we can see the pain in light of what is true with God. It's in that intersection point that all of our hope can reside because we can't hope in the beyond if it doesn't impact us. That's not hopeful at all for us. We can't hope from what's in us to be the solution because we know and we've lived out that that's not the case. There's no hope in humanity alone. So when Paul talks in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, he says, united in Christ. That's what we're talking about, that friction point, the intersection, the overlap. He says that's the goal of the Christian life. To embody Christianity is to come in union with Christ, to increase the overlap between you and God over the course of your life. And then in, chapter, in verses 12 and 13 at the end, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Wait a second. Continue to work because it is God who works in you in order to fill his good purposes. What on earth does that mean? Who's doing what? Is God doing it? Am I doing it? Is the answer just yes? On Thursday, I was in class, and I got a text message that was just a picture from Megan of a positive COVID test at about 3.30 in the afternoon. Sitting in class, everything was great. I was looking forward to Megan's birthday celebration on Saturday that I had planned for her, a day off on Wednesday to go celebrate with her. For the first time in years, I had truly gotten it all together and had really planned a great celebration for my wife to honor her for her birthday. I thought about 4th of July plans. All When I saw this image, suddenly my entire body just completely removed itself from any interaction with God. I'll be super honest. I'm sitting in class. I can't hear the words from the teacher. I can't. I'm completely internalized. God does not exist. All of the magic that was happening up to that point just... It's like they take the needle off the record player. It's horrible. God didn't leave me, but I completely left him in that moment. And I started to spiral, right? And I started to go, ah, right? And I'm starting to not be supportive to Megan, but to think about myself and how my plans weren't working out, how the things I had set up were disappointing me. It took me a while. It took me a while to go, right, here we are. We're in contact I removed myself, and it took me a while to be like, okay, okay. It didn't change anything. It did not change anything for me to go back like this in terms of the facts of reality. I went like this. I go, okay, God, I'm back. My two kids still have COVID. 
My plans are all still changing. But one thing did change because God said, now I can comfort you. Now you can lament. Now you can hope. If you remove yourself from all that, you can't do any of those things with me. But if you come back in contact, now you can do all of those things in companionship with me. Now you can be strong for your family. Now you can grieve appropriately. Now you can see loss as more temporary. Now you can see the frustration of your plans in light of my plans. And I'll admit, like, I went back in contact for a minute, then I got in the car, got on the phone with Megan, I went back out of contact for a minute, I drove home, I came back in contact with God, then I got home and I went way out of contact with God, right? And, like, it's just back and forth. Then I woke up the next morning, I go to sleep, I go, okay, we can do this, we got this, because, right, like, let's just be honest, the most disappointing thing about COVID right now is not the sickness. It's about how much it messes up all your plans. That's the hardest part. In, out, in, out. Go to sleep. Go, okay, Megan and I are on the same team. We're going to do this. We got this. Wake up. Literally can't get out of bed. I'm just like, it's so, guys, it was just pathetic. I was just like, what's the point, right? Like, I'm just spiraling. And here's the challenge. The challenge is that I can't escape the body. Bodies get sick. We can't escape our bodies. Bodies break down. They get ill. They have diseases. Bones break. Muscles hurt. Hearts get sick and they get sicker. We can't fix these things. But we also can't bow to the body. So to be embodied in Christ means that we accept that we have bodies, that bodies get sick and they break down. But we don't bow to the body Because when we bow to the body, we get angry and we get vindictive and mad at God. We get mad at our families. We become useless. And we became frustrated and frustrating. We need a new calibration to find peace. In light of the facts and the truth, as we've talked about, the facts around me and the truth promised to me, It required me to change my body's plans, desires, and goals. That was the requirement. I had to do something, but also Christ was doing something in me. So as we got through Saturday, and the whole morning I'm just thinking about how this is way less than what it ought to be, and how it's just sort of like a shadow of the thing it could have been, and just existing in that sense of lack and disintegration, then I get into this point where suddenly Christ in me, through union with him, through the contact, which I'll get more into in a minute, of other people around me being Christ to me, I say, I'm going to change my plans. Those were my plans, but they're not my plans anymore. Now I have new plans in light of the facts plus the truth. God has stuck me here with my family. God is actually growing something here with my family. I am to support my family. I am to enjoy my family. So we got out the art stuff and the supplies that I hadn't used because I hadn't had time in months. They're sitting in a corner. We gather them all around the kids and we draw in the front yard for two or three hours. It ends with me 
laying on Megan's lap with my eyes closed and that sun, that magical feeling where you have the sun coming through your eyelids and the warmth. And I just said, God, you are good. God, you are good. Thank you for my body. Thank you for being here with me in my body, even though in four days I may get a positive test. God, you are good. And thank you for this intersection that Jesus has showed us that, that Christ is uniting with me. That I am asked to live into Jesus. That's what I'm asked to do as a Christian is to live into Jesus. And Paul says this, he says, you cannot do this alone. You can't do this alone. Philippians 2 is not a big paragraph about what Jesus did and what you're supposed to do as an individual in isolation. It is a letter to a group. Therefore, if you all have any encouragement from being united together in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, these are all relational terms. Then make my, this is Paul, make my joy complete, another relationship, by being like-minded with each other, having the same love, being of one spirit and one mind. To embody Christ is not an individual practice. It is not something we each try and do on our own. It is something we do as we do it together. I will guarantee you, that I could not have come back in contact with Jesus without my family and without you guys over this week. It, I needed community. I needed that. God put that in my life to bring me back to him. This is why we cannot leave a physical embodied church. We just can't do it. That is Paul's message here. Philippians 2 is talking about purposeful, particular union with Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, Paul is writing to a colony mostly made up of retired Roman soldiers, their families, people that serve them, that are surrounded by an entirely different culture. It's as if a little part of Rome was in the Wild West. It's as if for America, the pioneers are the gold rush and they're out there around Native American cultures and totally different people. They're strangers in a strange land. And they understand, even the non-Christians here would all understand the need to band together. Paul is saying it's the same as Christians living in a strange land in this world. You've got to band together. You've got to strive for unity. That's what verses 1 and 2 are all about. Do you all find Jesus appealing, he's saying? Then for goodness sakes, find each other appealing. This is a message for the church in our day. Do we all find Jesus appealing? Then why can't we get along with each other? If we're all trying to be united with the same Christ, but 
But then to understand why this is so hard, because we all know, we all roll our eyes, even if, as, as I say this, John, it's so naive. The same Jesus, that's the problem right there. To embody Christianity together, we have to look at the forces at play in the strange land that are forming us so we can become wise. What is at play that is forming us? So what we have to do then is we have to contrast our purposes as human bodies apart from Christ and then ask what is the true purpose given to us? Because in verse 12 and 13 it says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill what? Your good purposes? Is that what the text says? No. To fulfill his good purposes. We all are naturally trying to work out our salvation to fulfill our good purposes. That no, nobody needs to teach you that. We intuitively, innately, are born into a survival mode that says, I'm going to work out my salvation given my purposes. That is not the message of Philippians. And that is not the message that should be in the church. However, what we've done is we've taken that as Christians and we've said, I'm going to do that, but around it, I'm going to put an image and a projection and a shell that appears as if I'm doing the Jesus thing. That's the problem. And Paul's saying, you've got to get this in contact and just push it in. You've got to get the fingerprints all over that thing. You've got to let Jesus into you and you into Jesus. Because the same philosophies that were alive and invading the church at the time of Paul are alive and invading the church today. These two philosophies are still very much alive and well. In fact, they're even having resurgences by name. They're Stoicism and Epicureanism. Follow me for a minute. Stoics are having a total revival. The idea with Stoic is basically an idea from Plato which said that the body is a prison for the mind. The body is holding you back. The mind should be the Lord of the body. We all know these people. These are the people that say, I will crush this in my mind vice. Right? These are people that say, I can overcome anything with my mind. Right? I can get myself out of any problem. We can get culture out of any problem because humans are smart and we can solve any problem with our mind. Right? The result of this kind of thinking that Paul saw all the time was a detachment from the body as part of God's feedback loop for us. It can look like a love for intellectualism without action. It can look as people who are into theory over practice. It can look at people who become detached from reality. People who don't care for bodies because they're not going to go into the hereafter. People that hate bodies. The other, the other view that is alive and well, and was alive and well in his time, is that the mind is a servant for the body. We also see this view in Portland everywhere. That the body is the compass to all that matters. Listen to your body. What is it telling you? Obey your body. That looks good? Eat it. That looks fun? Do it. 
We all know these people. These are the Carpe Diem, YOLO. You only live once. Go for it. Yeah, you like, these are the people that you tell them your story. It doesn't matter what your story is. They go, man, go for it. You're doing so great. And I'm like, I don't know why I tell you anything. You're just going to say yes to whatever I tell you. You're just an echo of my narrative. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for somebody to challenge me. Not to just sign off on whatever I feel like. But we live in a culture that's very epicurean. It's all about feeling pleasure as the salvation that we should be after. Our good purpose. And what happens with an epicurean view is that what feels like freedom actually turns into an enslavement to our hungers. After a while we find out I'm only happiest When I fill in the blank, eat, sleep, play video games, have sex, like whatever the thing is, that's the thing where now I feel saved, whole, and as if my life has purpose. But as soon as we partake of those hungers, it's so fleeting. And there is a law of diminishing returns. And with the Epicureans, emotions reign supreme. So with the Stoics, reason reigns supreme. With Epicureans, emotions reign supreme. Now, why am I going into all this? Because God's good purpose is entirely different than the two invading forces that were affecting the churches Paul was dealing with in the Roman world. The true human purpose, the purpose that being an embodied Christian gets at, is this new kind, it's actually a very old kind, but it would feel new to anyone who encountered Jesus, a new kind of a divine intersectionality. That's a word we commonly use in academics today as a focus of an overlap of race and social issues and gender to find areas of injustice and disadvantage and address them and say we've got to look at all of these things coming together to really figure it out. God says there is an intersectionality that you have to look at, but it's a different one. It's a divine intersectionality with the world, and it's a tool for hope that if we find God's overlap into our lives in every area, it will be a tool for empowerment, hope, and purpose. Embodied Christianity is also interdisciplinary. It's another academic word, and it means for when you cross over between physics and economics and art and English, and you combine all of these things together, and you look at how they all relate to each other. To be embodied and living into Christ is not just a mind thing. It's not just an emotion thing. It's not just an exercise or a diet thing or a reading thing or a CrossFit thing or, a, or whatever Speaking, praying, serving in the community. We want to reduce. And we want to say, oh, our church is about X thing. Right? Or our denomination is about X thing. Or our faith or our family is about this. Right? We pick our kind of our big thing. But to embody Christ means that in everywhere, we are on the borderlands of God and us. And God has given us our body 
Wendy's body, Alan's body, Beth's body, my body are all given to us by God. We may think that they're deformed. We may think that they're pretty or not so pretty. We may think we're tall or short. We may wonder why our skin is a certain color or tone. One of Amelia's friends said that she just doesn't like that her hair is red, right? What can you do about the fact that you don't like something God has given you? We might be blind or deaf, abled or, quote, disabled. But God has given us that as a means in which to interact with each other and to interact with him. He's given us our particular body as a means to interact with him. He's given me my bald spot as a means to interact with him. That's crazy to think about, but it's true. And so fulfill his, our true human purpose, which is his true human purpose, which is our human purpose. But we're primarily preoccupied with our bodies as ourselves. So we say, it's my body, right? With our body, we develop a sense of entitlement or ownership, privilege, and Philippians 2 is a text that says, for all of our bodies, it's not about you. For every Christian in the church, it's not about you. It's not even about your humility. This is a text that some of your Bibles will have headers saying like, Christian humility or the humility of Jesus. It is a text about our collective purpose. Jesus does not take on the incarnation in a vacuum of meaning that is then backfilled. He takes on flesh as a fulfillment of the human project in its entirety. So God has started the human project way back with what we would call Adam and Eve, right? We have an understanding of the origin of who we are. And Jesus does not by appearing make all of that real. All of that was real, and Jesus, in some way, is a climax or fulfillment of all of that. Jesus is, by his nature, a community leader. He is a gateway point, an intersection between past us and future us. So he's a community leader, not just for his 12 disciples or for all the people that followed him. He's a community leader for all of mankind. For the community of mankind that would be even his enemies, but because of him can be his friends. It's paradoxical, it's crazy, it makes your mind turn. You don't need to get to the bottom of it right now. Jesus is the center point of all history, we say. He is utterly unique. And to follow him, to say, I want to follow that guy, is totally dangerous. And yet it's our true purpose. We, by grabbing Christ by the hand, take on all of the danger, all of the power, and all of the same protection he had. 
And it's all to fulfill our true purpose. What is that purpose? What is the purpose of Adam and Eve in the garden? Go on, maybe somebody try it. What, what is one thing that God tells Adam and Eve? What's a purpose for them? Tend to the garden. What's another thing he tells them? Obey. Obey, Obey tend to the garden. What's one more? Let's think about what, what do they do when they leave the garden? What do Adam and Eve start? They start work. They build a family. He talks about being guarding his creation, obeying his commandments, walking with him, and being fruitful and multiplying. These are part of the, what they, we, we call the covenant of Eden, the promise, the gift that God gives at Eden, the purpose that he gives humanity. And Adam, of course, fails utterly, far worse than Eve. And now we need to repair this purpose, right? So Christ then in Romans and other places in the New Testament is called the new Adam, right? He's called the fulfillment of Adam. He's referred to as the one who restores what Adam lost. But how? How does Christ fulfill this purpose? By working out salvation with fear and trembling by God working in him. So how do we fulfill our true purpose? By following Jesus, by being united, sure. But people, as we've already talked about, do lots of following, lots of Jesuses. Paul even talks about this. Which Jesus do you claim to follow? This is not a new idea. And each group could follow Philippians 2 in some way and say, oh, we are united with Jesus. And then we all cause lots of trouble. And none of us are united with each other. Everybody's united to a different Jesus. But if Christ is the new Adam, and Adam failed at what? He failed at obedience to God. He failed in his commitment to guard creation. He even failed in some ways in his promise to be fruitful and multiply because though he had kids, he was not able to father them, to be followers of God. But God didn't give up on Adam. And God's purpose then if we look back at Eden and look forward to Christ and say, let's connect these two things. We want to understand our true purpose. God's purpose for us as humans, and this is important because this is what we need to work out for our salvation with fear and trembling. And this is what God is going to do work in us to do. Our purpose for humanity is this. He wants us to be blessable. I'm borrowing this from my teacher, Gary Brashears, who said it so well. He wants to be, us to be blessable, image-bearing, covenant partners. Meaning that with him, we are stewarding God's creation 
guarding his good material world, being fruitful and multiplying, not just people, not just having babies, not just raising kids, but people who will be these same blessable image-bearing covenant partners. His, his, his saying was, you're being fruitful and multiplying people who will still be in a church at age 53. The goal is not just to have more babies. The goal is to bring more partners that will be in union, that will be living into Jesus. To do what? To participate in a cosmic war. We're in a war zone. To crush the serpent by forming communities, and this is beautiful, of integrity, compassion, mercy, generosity, love, and justice, and doing good for the sake of God and others. He mentioned that the black preacher, Tony Evans, summed this up as God wants us to be a beautiful bride for his beautiful son, which is a great quick way to understand it, but there's so much there. So we have a different purpose than just feeding our hungers. We have a different purpose than just overcoming things with our mind. We are partners in a purpose for creation and each other. Now, I'm way up here floating around in outer space in the abstract, right? Personal stories have been gone for a while. Everybody's gone, okay, what do I do with this? Like, what do I actually do with all this biblical theology and theory what what do i actually well paul's actually doing that he says yeah all this stuff can get really woo-wooing out there and like okay put the hand back in contact and it needs to get real he's talking about uniting with other christians to become these blessable covenant keeping partners who are going to form communities of integrity and compassion and goodness and justice by getting along with each other, by being united with the same Jesus. If any of you find comfort, if any of you find common sharing in the spirit and any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded for goodness sake, by having the same loves, by being in one spirit, one mind. He's grounding it. But we have to go even further because we write off the Bible so quickly and we go, oh, I just kind of read that and I already forgot it. I don't really know what that means for my life. Gary put it this way. He said, look, if you look around to others right now, if you look around to other community, name any community, it really doesn't matter. He said, dystopian imaginations are reigning. What does dystopian mean? It means instead of a utopian worldview that everything is going to be great one day, the prevailing worldview is everything is going to be horrible one day. Right? That is the prevail. Any camp is fighting against a projected dystopia. They're saying that can't happen, but everyone internally is very deeply afraid that that's what's going to happen. And our imaginations are attaching themselves to the horrible outcomes. So we say one of the big mental health issues right now for teens with cell phones is doom scrolling. Doom scrolling is what they call it. Because if you go on the internet, it feeds off the urgency that can be created with bad outcomes. We don't want bad things to happen. Our survival impulse kicks in and we start to get anxious and panic. We do rash things like spend money, follow people and seek distraction and entertainment. 
He said, these dystopian imaginations are reigning. If you talk to other people, they have a very hopeless outlook, and the future is very dim. He says, but in the church, we have hope, and the future is bright. I say that, and my question is, do you believe that? Do I believe that? Do I have hope that the future is bright? Others say this, Gary said. He says, they are killing us. They are killing us. I thought that was profound. It doesn't matter which camp you in. Everybody's pointing a finger at them and saying, don't let them win or we'll all die. But we speak of hope and power and we know that in the end we triumph, but we are not triumphalists. We are not trying to triumph in this life. That's the profound difference between Christians and everybody else. We are not out to win. Let me say that again. We are not out to win. Christ alone will win. And we are here to act like Christ in this Christ hymn in verses 5 through 11 so that he would win. So we live in what has been called by Gerhard Voss, coined this term, theologian, but we all know it, the already and the not yet, or I've often said the now and the not yet. Seminary word for this is inaugurated eschatology, if you really care. That God has inaugurated, he's brought, he said, the big fanfare, it's here, the end times are actually here at the cross and the resurrection. And we are going to experience it in a paradox that we will both be in it but not in it we will both know it but not experience it in kind of a bodily way it's not until we come in contact and are in union with god that anything will make any sense and all of the things that he's going to have make sense for us are all paradoxes and that's what's so crazy about it being christian does make your mind spin because in order to be strong i need to be weak In order to live eternally, I need to die. Like there are all of these paradoxes of living. But those are the mysterious truths that blow our minds, but don't blow God's mind. And so he has to say, you've got to trust me. If you want to live the true purpose of your body in this world, you have to live in the fullness of the already and the not yet. And that's the only way you can form true sacrificial serving communities that live into and out of the name of Jesus. So how do we live this true purpose together? How can I speed this up? Let's see. I've been through some of this. The first one is to simply be aware that we are not our own, that there is no such thing as individualism. That requires its own act of faith in our culture because everything around us is forming a sense that you are an individual, that you are in control, that you can chart your own destiny. The Jews would not have had this worldview. They would have had a very different worldview. It was much more communal at that time. 
The Bible talks all the time about inheritance. And if you think about it, none of us are in control of very much at all. We are, in, we are given agency and free will to do what we can with what we have. We don't control our hair color. We don't control our body types. We don't control the income levels that we were born into. So much of what we have is inheritance. And so we play comparison games against different people's inheritances. That's not going to get us anywhere. Right? We say, God, you must not love me because I don't have right now what other people have. And he said, you've got to get out of that limited view and live in the already and the not yet to escape, to free yourself. Not even to escape. To actually more deeply embed yourself into my purpose. It's not about running out from everything. It's about how can I equip you so that you can run in to everything. And it requires living into Jesus. Uh, this might be a two-parter. I'm going to give you a glimpse of something here that Paul thought when he was uh, seeking resurrection. And this can give you a glimpse of how we can mess this up as community. We can think triumphantly about how we are pursuing resurrection and it will be dangerous to community. How do I put that in a better way? Let me, let me just tell you a story. So Paul believed in the resurrection of the body. He was a Jew and they believed that, that all bodies would be resurrected at the coming of the Messiah. So you say, oh, that sounds pretty much like a Christian, right? The way that they were going to bring the Messiah was by making straight the paths for the Lord. It's a passage in Isaiah, then it's proclaimed by John the Baptist, right? The way that Paul makes it straight is by going and killing everybody who won't straighten up. And what Paul believes is that by going and hunting down all of the Christians who are blaspheming and cro making crooked the ways for Jewish people, that he will clean things up enough so that the Messiah will come and the resurrection will happen. Now you say, that's crazy talk. I would never do anything like Paul. I can't believe that. The guy's such a jerk. How often as Christians and as the church do we go, we need to win these political battles. We need to win these things so that we can enforce on the world a moral vision that will make the world great for Jesus. And we will do that not by acting like the people of Philippians 2, but we will do that by acting like Paul. And then Jesus comes and appears to Paul. And what has happened to him? And how is he? What is he like? He has been crucified on a cross. And he's resurrected. So Paul's mind is blown. He's experiencing a paradox. And he's going, the Messiah is before me because he's resurrected. So he's living proof, right, of what I was trying to bring. And he did it not by triumphing over everyone, but by dying for everyone. And this is the birthplace of Paul's 
theology of Christianity. Paul doesn't convert to Christianity. He rethinks everything in light of Jesus and then completely changes the way he does everything. Every single thing in his life. His whole life trajectory changes. The way he relates to communities changes. The way he practices out life and resurrection changes. And Paul probably had, in the past down in oral tradition, I don't necessarily know that he wrote this, this Christ hymn that probably was recited in Christian communities all over the place as a way to practice and remember what it means to be a Christian, which is that we give up the nature of being God that's given to us in the Imago Dei that would be the intuitive answer that we should come to that says, oh, well, if I'm godlike, then I should be godlike. Then I should use my power for God's good. And he says, nope, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. We can't trust ourselves with our view of what will make society good. We have to embody Christianity. All right. I'm gonna, am I even going to open up a can of worms right now? 50 minutes. Uh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it briefly because I wanted to do it today. Um, if you haven't already thought about this, think about this in light of the decision in Roe v. Wade and Dobbs. Uh, the abortion change. The overturning of a federal law that prohibits, or sorry, that allows abortions to one by the Supreme Court that uh, now prohibits a federal mandate and it leaves it up to the states. That is what this law is. Think about this in light of Philippians 2. I want to apply this, all this crazy thinking, all this lofty thinking And I want to get it really real and challenge us all to get our hands dirty and start applying scripture to real stuff. Real stuff. What is one of the views as a result of this ruling that you will hear? It sounds a lot like Paul when he was hunting down Christians. We did it. You all lose. Democrats, you all suck. We win. We are triumphant. Christians are having their day again. Look, we have the power. There was even a video I watched that was a woman saying, thank you for this victory for white lives. And I said, what? Now, let me preface this. God is emphatically for life. God is emphatically for life. I intentionally avoid saying the word he's pro-life because God is not in our system. We're in God's system. Pro-life is the political term. God is not pro-life as we understand it. That just gets you able to divinely have sign off on any human law over any human body. God is for life, emphatically for life. I am emphatically with Jesus in being for life. And I emphatically want to live it out in the way that Paul discovers after he meets the resurrected Lord. Not as a triumphalist, 
in fact, willing to lament in this time, to mourn with those mothers who are mourning, with those women who are mourning, willing to listen and hear to those in low-income scenarios where this feels like a death sentence and permission for white men to control women's bodies. I want to lament with those people. And at the same time, I want to live in the paradox of knowing that God is both for the Imago Dei, he's for the true purpose of humanity to be fruitful and multiply, but he also is for and divinely gave us free will and is not for the enslavement and the lording over of people. Laws like this in certain states could lead to the imprisonment of women with babies in their body because the baby has more rights now than they do. It could lead to capital punishment. I'm not trying to scaremonger. I'm just saying that we need to understand the complexity. When Jesus, when people came to Jesus to entrap him, they would say, well, what is it, Jesus, this or this? They would, Are you pro-life or pro-choice, Jesus? That's what they were trying to do. Stick him in somewhere and get him in trouble. What did Jesus always do? He took a third route, and the third route was always personal. It was always personal. We can't solve abortion with laws. And I'm not trying to say they're not better or worse. Talk to me later if we want to get to that. But the point is, every solution for the Christian is in community with other people, looking in their eyes, in their bodies, the whole person. The abortion issue is so complicated because it fits into that paradoxical mystery space reserved for God alone, where two things come in complete and utter logical conflict with each other as humans. We literally can't figure them out. They're unfigureoutable. That's God's space to work. And so I just have to pray to live into the name of Jesus, knowing that I'm a broken person, knowing that there's no individualism in the kingdom of God, but we are here who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God to be something to be used to our own advantage. Rather, we make ourselves nothing by taking the very nature of servants who are made in human, full human likeness and being found in the appearance of humans, we humble ourselves by coming obedient to death, even the most embarrassing horrific, culturally humiliating death. And then God will exalt us into the highest places and give us the names that are with the name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. All of our knees will bow in heaven and earth and under earth. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, uh, I thank you that we have a church that is willing to be challenged. I thank you that we have a church that's willing to think deeply and nuance. But I pray that we're not a church that just enjoys thinking about nuance. But that we're an active church who sacrifices and risks and tries things out and seeks your face in everything we do. Thank you the way that our community has cared for each other. I pray for healing, of course, in our community. 
I pray for healing in our culture. I pray that we might be a light to the third way of Jesus. That we might offer ourselves in union with Christ to bridge the gap and to show people the true purpose you have for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.